Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis at the corner of Nicollet Mall and 12th Street. I am Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with the people of this Center City congregation. Each month on a given Thursday noon, we throw open the doors of this large, essentially round sanctuary to all comers who are ready to think, prepared to be challenged by a voice of experience, a person of conviction and conscience, as indicated by his or her track record in a given realm. Today we present to you, and we are delighted to do so, the youngest of our 30-some forum speakers, Lawrence Graham by name, 21-year-old graduate of Princeton University who is currently a student at Harvard Law School. This, by the way, is the first forum planned with young people specifically in mind. There will be others. Mr. Graham has written, I understand, some seven books. Three of them include 10-point plan for college acceptance, jobs in the real world, conquering college life. With reference to the latter volume, a review written by Ms. Reed of the Office of Career Services at Princeton says, an absolute must for preparing for and mastering the college experience. It's the best book for stratagems on the college experience to appear in many, many decades. Quite a statement. Graham has served internships at the White House, NBC Studios, and the Ford Foundation. It's a delight to have Blake Schools co-hosting Mr. Graham's being with us today. It's being done as part of the 10th anniversary celebration of the merger of Blake School, Northrop School, and Highcroft Country Day School, which took place in 1972, and a celebration of the first co-ed graduating class, the class of 1974. I understand that Mr. Graham has appeared, to name but two, on the Phil Donahue Show and the Today Show. With his appearance here at Westminster today, I'm inclined to say that his fortunes continue to improve. Let's give him a warm welcome on this cold Minnesota day. <laughs> Thank you for having me here today, and thank you, Dr. Meisler, for that introduction. And um, I want to thank also all of you for coming out today, because if this was in New York, people would stay inside. And my parents warned me about how cold it gets here, because my mother grew up in Chicago, but I really didn't believe them at all. It's, it's just amazing. But um, first of all, I want to start off with the fact is what the title of this program is supposed to be is, how to be a winner in education. And I want to start off with the fact you heard my, about my background, but I want to explain, first of all, that all of us have different definitions for that word winner. And um, 
and also the word success, because I think that both of them can be taken out of context. And I think that often in the media and through television and the movies and through um, newspapers and magazines, we hear this word success and we think of money or we think of expensive cars or fancy homes and we sort of lose sight of what success can mean to different individuals, such as things as happiness and, and family and different types of relationships. And um, so I want to start off by saying that my definition of being a winner or being f successful for myself means doing the things that I enjoy doing and being with people that I enjoy being with. So first of all, I'll start off with perhaps talking about goal settings and, um, and how it relates to myself. First of all, I want to tell you that I do not have a written speech. What I'm looking down here occasionally is at an outline. I suppose the people on radio don't know I'm looking down, so that doesn't really matter. But anyway, um, just to start off with, um, when I was a freshman at Princeton, I had, um, was there for about a month before I decided that I wanted to do something unusual. So I was trying to think to myself and spoke to my parents and my roommate, well, what's unusual? And they said, well, maybe getting straight A's at Princeton might be unusual. So I thought, well, that's not something I really want to force myself to do. I'll, if I do it naturally, then fine. But what happened was after about, I'd say about two weeks after that, was first, that first month or month and a half, I received a letter from a friend of mine who asked me, who was a senior in high school back in White Plains in New York, and said, um, to me that he was about to have his college interviews and asked me what, how should he prepare himself for those interviews? How can he convince the schools that he's a real su successful go-getter type person that they'd want in their college? So I wrote a letter back to him explaining things like how to dress for the interview, um, the types of questions they'd ask, the kinds of answers they want to hear, because there certainly are answers they want to hear, and basically the types of things that he should be prepared for and it ended up being a 10-page letter, and after that, after I sent it off to my friend, I thought to myself, well, gosh, I've given him all this free information. Now, maybe I can turn this into a magazine article. And um, that's when I started querying magazine articles, <coughs> magazine companies, excuse me, asking them if they wanted an article on how to prepare for the college interview. And after receiving some interest, but a lot of hemming and hawing over the fact that I was just 16, they said, well, go, if you want to, we'll consider it. You can send it in if you want. But I thought, well, I want a little more enthusiasm behind my writing, especially if I'm going to work this hard for an article. So I thought instead I would try to write a book and turn the um, article into a full book on how to get into college dealing with things like studying for SATs and dealing with um, getting letters of recommendation, choosing colleges, and that whole, that whole bit. So after writing two chapters, there is a point to this story, so just bear with me. Um, after writing about two chapters, I went to New York City. And if you don't know the geography of Princeton, New Jersey, it's in southern New Jersey, and it's about, about an hour and a half away from, from New York City. And I went into New York City with two rolls of dimes and a Manhattan phone book. And I went into a phone booth on the corner of 49th Street and Park Avenue and started calling book publishers. And I knew nothing about the industry, and I just started the beginning of the alphabet and worked my way through. And I went through about 20 publishers who basically all laughed at me, and, and most of them wouldn't even connect me with an editor. I basically got to receptionists and secretaries and, and a few minor copy editors. And then finally, I decided 
after being told by a couple of them that no one's ever going to publish a 16-year-old, that maybe I should try to find a literary agent. So then uh, what I did is that I started calling literary agents in the phone book from alphabetically, and I ended up with um, an agent whose name is Susan Zeckendorf, and that starts with a Z. <laughs> and the point of the story is perseverance can really work for you because, I mean, while it seems um, humorous now, it really wasn't at the time because I was in this phone booth for about two hours and 15 minutes. And um, I'd been laughed at and I realized that there was a reason why they weren't taking me seriously and it was purely because of my age. They had no idea of my intelligence. I mean, I would assume that I, I thought I was articulate enough to explain what the whole purpose of this book was. But um, they were purely looking at the fact that I was 16 and I had no track record. And the whole point of that is not just um, the fact that perseverance can work to your advantage, but also the fact that you should never be discouraged about things that you've never done before. Never set a goal so low that you feel that, well, it's something you definitely can achieve. Set extremely high goals, and I think that's the way to, to quote, win at whatever you do. And, of course, I didn't realize that at that time I'd be writing seven books more within like, the next four and a half years, but the point of it was the fact that I knew that I had to start somewhere and I realized that no one was going to walk up to me with a silver platter and say, here's a, a contract for a book. And um, so that's basically the point of that story. The, the other thing that I wanted to point out was the fact is that near the end of freshman year, I decided that I wanted to do, have an interesting experience and somewhat of an important experience for a summer job. And, and I want to encourage any young people out there who are interested in this to, to go about doing the same thing, is that I wanted to work in Washington, D.C., because I wanted to see what government really was like, and I wasn't going to learn about it in New York or New Jersey. So I applied to the White House, and I sent a telegram to them and asked them, this is when Jimmy Carter was president, and um, I asked them if they, well, I didn't ask them, I said I wanted to apply for an internship there. And I had been told by other people that there were no internships in the White House, but I thought that if I pretended like I knew that there were, perhaps something would, would, would appear. And um, I pursued them with tel two telegrams and three telephone calls and had other people calling them. And again here, they were dealing with the fact that by this time I, I just turned 17. and. Um, they were dealing with the fact that, can we hire this teenager to work in the White House? What can he possibly do for us? So I thought, well, perhaps I could offer them my skills in, um, in writing and, and interviewing skills, things like that. And eventually I talked them into hiring me. But um, the point of this is the fact that I feel that you never should look at something as being so great and so grand that it's out of your reach. And in order to really succeed in life, and that means to reach the goals that you're setting for yourself, is to go out there and really pursue them and not to look at yourself as, as just being a student or just being a teacher or just being a mother or just being a grandparent or, or just being anything. There are a lot of things that you can do out there and you shouldn't look in magazines like People Magazine and, and, and that show people that have come from incredible Rockefeller-type backgrounds and see what these people have done. You should look at yourself as a, as a person who has all sorts of possible goals that can be reached and that um, really no one is limited. And that I have to add to myself that I know when I, when I speak in various places and when I'm on television, people often ask the question, 
um, of how does the, the fact that I'm a black student affect some of the things that I've done and some of the attitudes that I've had about the people and the various um, goals that I've set and approached and, and dealt with. And um, basically, I look at it just as anyone else would, but having never been white, I suppose, I wouldn't know how a white person would look at those same things. But um, I basically want to say is that you should never limit yourself by being young or by being um, a female or being a minority or any of those little labels that people use to, to basically hold particular people back. Um, the other thing I want to point out is, is to do the unusual. And what I mean by that is um, choose something that maybe none of your friends, none of your peers, none of your neighbors are doing and decide to pursue it. And for instance, just to give you an example, one of my classmates at Harvard and I just got together and we recently have started um, consulting, giving advice to major corporations in the country on how to better target and market their products and services to people in the 16 to 26 year old age group. And it seems like a very unusual thing to do, but a lot of these corporations and stores and companies really are out of touch because the people that are running their marketing campaigns um, are perhaps over the, over the age of 35 or 40 or even 50, and these people are making decisions that really are affecting young people, and they're expecting young people to buy their products. And just to give you an example, this is really a minor example, but it's an advertisement maybe you've seen, I don't know, but it started recently running, and was for, you know the alligator shirts, the, I guess I shouldn't do an advertisement, well this is not an advertisement, uh, the alligator shirts, I won't even name the company. And, um, but, I saw an ad for this company in the New York Times Magazine. And the little slogan, I guess it's their new slogan for the company is, now more than ever. And I don't know if many of you remember whose campaign slogan that was, but if you don't remember, it was Richard Nixon's campaign slogan. And um, a lot of us on the hallway in our dorm were sort of laughing at that because we thought, well, notwithstanding the fact that Richard Nixon still has a lot of strong supporters, the fact that if this company ever really wanted to capture the young, young adult market that's in college or just out of college, that it's really the wrong approach because they really identify with it as being a Richard Nixon slogan and not a slogan for Izod, oh, well, alligator, you know, okay, well, whatever. Okay, um, so that was something unusual that my roommate, and, my, um, roommate and I thought that maybe we might do. It was something that interesting because we thought that there's no reason, even though that we are in our first year of law school, there's no reason why we have to put our lives on hold and live a paper chase-like life, staying in the library for eight to ten hours a day, which there are some nerdy type people that enjoy doing that. It's not... It's, it's really not necessary, and I'm not making fun of them for doing it because it's something that they want to do. But for a lot of people, they end up doing things not because they want to do, but because, the, because they're, they feel that they're expected to do. They feel that as a parent that they are expected to always um, go on family vacations. And I can give you an example right now that when people look at me and, and a lot of my friends say to me, well, why are you always visiting your high school? Because I like to visit my high school like once a month and just to see teachers and, and see the classmates who are younger brothers and sisters of some of my friends. And, and a lot of them say, well, Larry, why don't you just grow up and, and leave the high school alone? And my, what I say to them is, um, just because I'm growing up doesn't mean I have to grow away. 
And um, what I mean by that is that I'm close to my parents, I'm close to home, I'm close to my school, and, and to people that are not just my own age and that are doing the same thing, but people that really I feel that I can learn from and also that some people that can learn something from me. And I think that there are a lot of people out there that can learn from young people and a lot of young people that can learn from older people. But um, I suppose I talk a mile a minute. Am I talking too fast? I don't know if I'm talking too fast. And a lot of people say this is typical New York talk, but it, it really isn't because my parents don't talk this fast and neither does my brother. But um, I did want to point out the fact that as far as school is concerned, that I try to encourage a lot of um, a lot of young people, because I visit a lot of high schools a lot, in addition to doing a lot of TV um, appearances, that I tell people that my, uh, close to my own age, since I haven't graduated that far ago, that long ago, is the fact that they don't have to look at school as, as a type of disciplinary tool, because a lot of people look at parents as, look at teachers as being parents in school, and I guess it's the Latin term as in loco parenti or something like that, I don't know what it is. but. Um, but basically, it's to look at school as learning, learning about different types of people, learning about different types of cultures, and, and also learning from each other, because I think that a lot of young people have to stop this type of attitude of, of that, that macho type of, of attitude that they can't talk about their problems to friends their own age, and um, that they can deal with a lot of problems among themselves, and that they don't constantly have to run to the teacher or to the parent that they can also look within each other and find leaders and also find advice. And just to give you an example, although this is my first time in Minneapolis, I know that there has been a rash of teenage suicides around the country. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, but the greatest percentage of suicides happens to have occurred in, in my own county at home in Westchester County and in Scarsdale. And I think that the reason for that is that a lot of parents and a lot of children put put a lot of pressure on themselves to succeed because I think in our society today we're constantly told that we have to improve upon whatever our parents have given us. But once you look at yourself and let's say your parent has graduated from a, a, a college or, or has made a lot of his or her career, the child looks at himself or herself and says, well, what more can I do if we already have that four-bedroom split-oval house and two cars in the garage? And, and all those other things, how can I really do any better than that? My parents have given me everything on a silver platter and it's been very easy. Um, how much more can I do? How much do I have to get into a Harvard? Do I have to get into, into a Stanford? Is it important that I do all those things? And people have to stop looking at themselves and saying, I have to do these things. They should say, I want to do these things because there is a reason for them. And um, there's a reason for going to other schools. There's a reason for living in different types of neighborhoods. There's a reason for driving different types of cars. We don't all have to drive Cadillacs or Mercedes-Benzes. And I think that we're putting too much pressure on ourselves. And I think a lot of that pressure comes from the fact that we're internalizing messages from those Dynasty and Dallas TV shows that say that, well, we all want to live like Joan Collins and JR. And it's, 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 it's glamorous, yes, but at the same time, um, Joan Collins probably, I hate to speak for her, but she probably goes home and takes off that makeup and, and leaves those jewels at Harry Winston Jewelers. I mean, they don't belong to these people on television, and they don't belong to um, the people that are, that are sporting them at these parties that we read about in these um, 
these glossy tabloids. And we have to look to ourselves and, and to our families and, and to the community in places like the church and to our schools in order to get support and not to look on these frivolous sort of Hollywood type of mentality experiences that, we're, that so many of us are internalizing. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is the fact that parents and children and their children, there's no reason for them to treat each other as authoritarian figures, authoritarian figures, or as figures to be directed and told what to do all the time. And I don't know if I already said this, but I know that I've mentioned this to someone earlier. There was a student here from the Blake School who had asked me um, some questions basically to talk about myself, and I said that I, if someone asked me who my best friends were, I would say they were my parents and my brother. And I know that a lot of people might be surprised by that when a, when a young person says that, but I have no qualms and I, about saying it, and I don't apologize for saying it, because I think that there's not enough of friendship between parents and their, and their children. And it sounds very hokey to say that, and I probably sound like Norman Vincent Peale or Lawrence Welk up here telling you that. <laughs> but um, I really mean it. I really mean it, because there has to be someone who you can go to, who you can trust, because I know that as growing up, um, that there were a lot of young people, and my parents always said that children can be cruel. And, and I, you know, at 21 to be repeating that sounds sort of foolish, but it's absolutely true. And I know that at times, sometimes there are friends out there who you really think that are close friends who are happy to hear about your problems, not because they want to help you solve them, but because it makes them feel that much better that you've got problems too, or that you're be worse off than they are. And some people even feed, over, feed off of your problems. And this doesn't stop happening when you're 15 or 16 and go goes on until you're, until you're 50 or 60, and I know this is true because my parents tell me about some of their, quote, friends who, who are so sorry to hear about their problems, and yet if something happens, they're the last people to call. And, and, um, but I feel that the only people you really can rely on in the end, or not the only people, but the people that you should really start a foundation with is your family, and no matter what age you are at this point, it's not too late to go back and to become friends with your parents or to become friends with your children. And um, the same thing goes as far as talking to each other about, about things that you might not normally talk about, because in my family, we have this rule that there's no secrets. And this doesn't go so far as to listening in on converse, telephone conversations, but um, it goes so far as to telling um, each other about things that happen to us during the day and while, even though I'm at school I talk to my parents at least once a week and I'm fortunate enough my brother's in dental school at Tufts which is a neighboring school in Boston so it's about 15 minutes away and I see Richard about two times a week and at least talk to him twice a week in addition to seeing him so um, I don't believe in this generation gap that everyone talks about. I mean, I know that there, there is in certain families, but it's not because it's a natural occurrence. It's because people allow it to happen. It's because people fall out of touch by not staying in touch. They don't talk to each other, and they don't ask each other if there are problems. I mean, there's no reason for why the parent has to be the one to say once a week at the dinner table, okay, what happened at school this week? I mean, that's ridiculous to have such a formal situation like that. 
And I also think it's ridiculous on the other side for a child, no matter, I don't expect certainly a 12 or 11 year old child to ask their parents, is there, did, what, how was your day or what, was, what happened that, that's upsetting you now? But I certainly expect, would expect a 16 year old and anyone older than that to say to, your, to, say to their parents, what's wrong or what's bothering you or, or are you not getting along with, with dad or with mom or things like that. And, and I think that we have to place that type of, of, if you want to call it pressure or expectation on young people to start caring more about each other. And um, I know the situation is that a lot of my friends grow up and they, they might take a year after off after college or after high school or whatever and they say to their parents, I don't want to live at home and I want to go out on my own. And I know that in a lot of people's generations, in my parents' generation, that there wasn't that option because people weren't that wealthy in the, in the 40s and in the 30s as they are today. And they didn't have the option of constantly moving out on their own and moving away from their parents that they were much closer. And um, after I graduated from Princeton, just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, I lived at home for a year and I had a contract to write TV movies. And, um, which I'll, if I have time, I'll tell the story of how that happened. But basically what I did is I lived at home for that year in, in my parents' house. And I never call my parents' house. I don't know why I just did that. I always say my house. But um, it's, it's our house. And I lived at home and everyone from, from college and from high school who I ran into occasionally would say, so where are you living? And I'd say, in White Plains at home. And they'd say, you're living with your parents? And I'd say, yes, why? And um, at first I would say, yeah, it's a real drag and I hate it and I can't stand them. And, and you know, making up all these excuses and, and trying to pretend to be macho and yeah, I, have, I've got, I can't wait to get out on my own and everything. But I hate to admit it now and I eventually admitted it about four or five months after I started living at home for that year and I said, I love being home with my family and, and it's nothing to feel ashamed about. And, I was almost out there like a martyr because when people said, you're living at home, I would say, yeah, what's wrong with it? And um, it's, I'm not apologizing for it and I, and I don't apologize for it anymore. And um, I find that a lot of people um, are secretive about the fact that they keep in touch with their parents or that they spend a lot of time with them. And I don't know how many of you who are listening happen to have been sent away to camp, and I always used to say shipped away to camp um, during the summers, and I don't criticize parents because different parents have different lifestyles and occupations that require them to be away from their children, but at the same time, personally, I don't think much of the idea of, of shipping kids off to camp for three months and never spending time with them, and I also don't think much of, and I know I'm offending people, but sorry, um, about um, sending kids off to boarding school for five years of their life because, I mean, boarding school is not the ultimate protection if you're sending them away for the reason to stay away from drugs and sex and all those other bad things. And, um, but I basically want to say that in those same situations, I think children and young and teenagers are more open to problems like drugs um, then they are, um, when they're away from, away from their parents because parents are the ones who are noticing certain signs and their friends in their neighborhood are noticing certain signs and they mention to you or they mention to your family that, well, what's wrong with Joey or what's wrong with Susie? And that doesn't happen at boarding schools so much and it doesn't happen at those, a lot of those summer camps. Of course, some of them do play clo pay close attention, but when they have so many other young people to look at, 
and to take care of, it's really hard to notice all those signs. But um, the other thing I wanted to point out was the fact is, it's to stop babying, babying young people and to stop expecting them not to know anything about sex and not to know anything about drugs when they're going to our movies, when they're watching these nighttime soaps and even the daytime soaps for any of you. I mean, I was, used to be hooked on all my children when I was at Princeton. And, I mean, and all the things that happen in there, I mean, I, I know a lot of the people's parents, of a lot of the young, a lot of the classmates of mine's parents would never have expected that type of thing to be on television. But it's surprising, but it's a, and it's a scary thing. I know when I visit high schools and junior highs that there are 14-year-old kids who who've had sex before, and this is not in just um, particularly lower-class neighborhoods. I mean, this is going on in the most upper-class neighborhoods and, and communities. And it's foolish for parents to ignore this in the home and to not deal with it and not to discuss it, because what happens is young people fall under peer pressure. And while they're being told to succeed in school and to get top grades, they're also forced to deal with that pressure of avoiding drugs, avoiding sex, and avoiding a lot of other different issues that their parents are, are, are I hate to say the word, but generally just too prudish to discuss or are afraid to discuss at home. And um, it's just foolish, I think, because by ignoring it, I think young people are going to experience a lot of these things a lot earlier than they should. And um, I know this is breaking all decorum, but I have to look at my watch, okay, to see if I have enough time. Do I have like three minutes? Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, I don't need three more minutes. I'm just asking if that's how much time I, <laughs> I've got. Okay, let me look at this outline to make sure that I've covered everything. Well, I guess I basically I'll sum up, and I hope you all have questions. And um, basically because you can ask me about anything, whether it deals with college, any of the books that I've written, or um, the consulting that I'm doing for these companies, or on any of the experience, my personal experiences on how I was able to, to write for television or write for movies, TV movies, or um, my experiences at the White House or whatever you want to ask. But I just basically want to thank all of you for coming to, to hear me speak and for inviting me to Minneapolis. And, and I do want to repeat, it is cold out here. I mean, I everyone's walking around saying, oh, it's a cool day today, isn't it? It's a cool day. I mean, this is cold. When I, when I got here, I called home to my parents and I said, do you know how cold it is here? And they said, yeah, about 10 degrees. I said, no, it's like minus 25 degrees with, with wind chill. And yet I still walked down the mall here in Minneapolis just to see what the town looked like. And um, it took three minutes for me to, to realize that this is, I can understand why Mary Tyler Moore stopped filming her show here. <laughs> It's a great show, and it's a beautiful park out there that she runs through, but I don't know if, if it's enough. <laughs> but thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So stay here? Just sit down. Okay, sit down. Okay. I think you're all right. Okay. Thank you, Lawrence Graham. When we spoke to your agent in New York way last summer when it was considerably warmer than this. Uh, they said, you really ought to have this young man. He's bright, he's enthusiastic, he's caring, and he has some important things to say. And uh, she was right on all counts. We'll take a moment now and permit those of you who must leave and go out into the cold to do so. While you're doing that, uh, 
The others of you may uh, fill out your question cards on those yellow cards that are in the pews for the purpose and begin sending them uh, to the aisles and the ushers will pick them up. Just a word to our radio audience to remind them that uh, you are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, minister with this congregation. This program will be rebroadcast Saturday noon uh, over Minnesota Public Radio, both AM and FM. Our next town hall forum will be January 17th in the new year when Archbishop Roach of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis will be our speaker. We're delighted that the Blake Schools are co-hosting today Lawrence Graham's appearance. So uh, do send your questions along uh, with reference or in deference to the little gap that we have here. We, we always generate a few questions in advance. So, uh, Scram, would you mind returning to the podium and I'll uh, start shooting a few of them to you right away. I'd like to refer to an article that came to my attention, uh, reprinted in our Minneapolis paper from the Washington Post by William uh, raspberry just the other day. The paragraph reads as follows. Is starting to learn the obvious. Value-free education is a contradiction in terms. It still is far short of being accepted educationist dogma, but in scattered classrooms across America, teachers are once again teaching values along with reading, writing, and social studies. Would you care to comment on that at all, or what is your perception of that observation? I think that it's an interesting observation because I know that there's a reluctance for parents to accept, to allow a lot of public school teachers and faculty to talk about values in the, in the classroom because we're always dealing with this issue of separation of, of church and state. And I think that that it is important for us to have some sort of a moral value in the class. I mean, it doesn't have to relate to religion, but it can just simply relate to caring and to giving and to, to having patience and to, to stop this attitude of, of telling. Because I've, I've been in schools and I know that I've been in classrooms where I've had classmates literally say to a teacher, I don't have to listen to you, I pay your salary. And it's, it's a scary and it's a shameful thing. And it, I mean, of course, at the time, it's. It's, it's, it's pretty amusing to, to, to 14, 13, and 14-year-olds, but it's, it's a dangerous type of, of an attitude if we're ever to really respect a teacher mm -hmm. and to learn from them. I, uh, we had as a speaker here some months ago Robert Coles from Harvard, right. mm -hmm. and I noticed an article by him just recently, nothing that a return to the three C's, conduct, caring, and character building, couldn't cure says noted Harvard, Harvard psychiatrist and educator, uh, just amplifying what you've said in effect. Here's another question, or a comment and a question. I'm scared the world is going to blow up before I graduate from college. Why should I go to college for four years, get caught up in the race for good grades and grad schools? College seems to be a cop-out, a place where you can hide in books, libraries, and frats from the real world. I realize that's not what college is supposed to be, but from visiting and talking with students, that's what I've seen. It's absolutely true. That is what happens, and it's easy to get caught up 
in a rat race of trying to get top grades, and not just because you want them, but because everybody else is doing it. But my suggestion, and it is hard to do this, is to, to look at yourself and to say that, okay, I'm here for, for several reasons, but all these reasons are for, for, my own, for myself, and these are reasons that I've created for myself. And one thing I want to point out is that, realistically, it's hard now to say, well, my parents didn't go to college and they're successful, why do I have to go? But the problem is, is that it's so competitive in order to get jobs and to start careers that college is just another screening process that, that the real world uses in order to, to choose you or to hire you for a job. But the other thing is, is not to allow peer pressure because peer pressure not only can get you involved in things like drugs, but it can also get you involved in competing to such an extent that you really look at yourself as a grade, as I'm a B plus student or I'm a C student. And that's not true. I mean, you are, are not just a student, you're a person. And if you happen to get C grades, doesn't mean that you're any less of an individual than if you happen to get A grades. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. A number of questions flooding in now from the, from the group gathered here today. Uh, sure, my college is integrated according to the admissions catalog, but blacks and whites rarely mix. The blacks that do hang out with whites are often uh, criticized for being too white. Having gone to one of those fancy schools, tell me what does a white kid do to really integrate her school? Okay, I think that's a good question. I'm, I'm really, really glad to hear that there's someone, wherever that student is, is asking something like this because it shows that they have empathy for the fact that that there's such a thing as the black table at, in the cafeteria or the or the Jewish table in the cafeteria and there things do unfortunately break down like that and I think what happens and I know that having having grown up in a situation where I was the only black in a lot of situations is that I was forced to mix and it never occurred to me that I was any different than anyone else other than the fact that my skin color was different. But I would basically say is to, to go to your principal or go, go to the dean, whatever the situation might be, and tell them that you want to form some sort of a human relations or if you don't already have one, because sometimes these things are really bogus and the, um, the deans or the, or the teachers just start them because they think that, that if they don't have them, the press will give them bad coverage and say that they have no empathy or concern for race mixing and, and, and um, that type of type of issue, but I think that you should make a conscious effort and not be afraid to go and sit down at that black table or at that Jewish table or oriental table or whatever the situation might be if, um, if you're that white student. Because sometimes a lot of these people are separating themselves because they think that you would never want to be sitting at that same table or never have the concern or never even realize that they are even in that same cafeteria. and. Um, that I can say for myself that at Princeton that is one of those schools where things like that did go on and one had to make the effort. I mean, I think it was during my sophomore year where a lot of students started complaining about the fact that there was a dormitory on campus that was 50% black when you've got a school that was only 9%, I think it's like 8 or 9% black. 
and um, it wasn't, this didn't happen by accident. Students particularly chose the fact that they wanted to live in that particular dorm, and I think that it was up to the school not only to insist that students, if not mixed through dormitory, but mixed through activities and mixed through organization and encourage white students to get involved in activities that were more commonly um, involved, involved black students and vice versa. Another question, uh, obviously also from a young person, is college for everyone? Someday I'll go, but right now it just doesn't click. I'm starting to feel like a loser, but I don't think I am. What can I tell myself to convince me that I'm not? What can I tell my parents to get them off my back? <laughs> <laughs> well, if your parents are in the room right now, I don't know how much you're going to be able to tell them, but, um, or if they're listening. But one thing I'm going to say is that it is difficult for one to say that college is for everyone, but I'm going to say that if you aren't going to be attending college, you better be independently wealthy. And um, it's a scary thing to say, but the reason why I say that is because if you allow yourself to be caught up, like I was saying earlier, with the media and wanting all those things that you see on television, wanting all those things that you read about in the newspaper, it's going to be difficult to have those things if you don't have a job that pays enough for you to buy them. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I would say that college does put you in the position to be able to bargain out there in the real world to get the types of jobs that you do want and to do the types of thing that you want. Now, if you are thinking of a career, let's say, as a writer, um, I feel still that, I mean, some people would say, well, if you're gonna, you want to be a writer, you don't have to go to college, but I mean, my attitude is, I would say, just the opposite because the college experience is not just a classroom experience, but it's a people experience where you're getting to deal with people like your roommate, with classmates, you're joining activities. I mean, not only that, college is a, a lot more fun. I was going to say a different word, but I, I won't say that. Um, <laughs> it's a lot more fun than high school, mainly because it's, I personally say, and I, I went to public school, I started off in private school, I went to public high school, and I graduated, well, obviously graduated from a private Ivy League University, but the situation is that the, the experiences that I was having were so different from what I was having in a public school environment where everyone lived in the same hometown. When you're going to a university, whether it's the University of Minnesota, whether it's the University of North Carolina or, or um, Cornell University, it doesn't matter. You're meeting people from all around. They're not all from your neighborhood. They're not all around the block. They don't all come from the same type of cultural background that you do. And not only that, um, the average high school class meets from, you're in high school from let's say 8.30 in the morning until 3 o'clock or 2.30. And um, in college, you're only having maybe two classes a day or three at the most, which is maybe three and a half hours of classes a day, and you're not meeting five days a week. So a lot of people who think that it's a college is just a continuation of the high school routine, they're, they're wrong, because there's a lot more time for activities and doing what you want, to partying and staying up until, until one o'clock in the morning and not having your parents right there telling you, get to work and start studying, because college is a time when you're on your own and you're saying, well, I know what I've got to do if I want to get through here. And the end all is not just the grade, it's, it's also meeting people and starting a network of future friends because 
I'm sure a lot of people can tell you that they not only have friends from high school, but they have a lot of friends from college that they get to meet, and they're spending more time with them. Well, here's a, a change of pace question. Uh, sure, it's easy for you to tell me to play the system. It's been nice to you. Princeton, Harvard, the White House, TV shows. It's easy for you to feel like a winner. I don't have any of these things. How do I feel like a winner? That's a terrific question. That's a really great question. But the point is the fact that when I graduated from Joe Schmo White Plains High School back in White Plains, New York, I was, if you want to use those terms of nobody, I was just as much of a nobody as, as Joe Schmo was. But my attitude was the fact that the fact that I was starting in a college, I'd worked hard during high school, and hard work is something that anyone can do. And it's easy for me to say that, well, I hate that term, like I said before, I hate that term winner, but at the same time, I've created the things that I've done. I mean, they didn't fall in my lap. I don't come from a wealthy background. I don't have great connections to any place. But the point is that I knew, I thought of the things that I might want to do, unusual type of things that seemed to be very interesting. And they happened to be things that would advance me to another goal that I was setting for myself. And um, the fact that I got into Princeton doesn't mean that I was going to get into Harvard Law School because most people, I think there were only, out of a class of 1,100, there were only, I think, maybe 35, 40 people who got into Harvard Law School, and everyone else wasn't going to the top law school or med school or whatever. It's not a natural assumption that if you go to a, a great college that you're going to get into a great graduate school. And it also, obviously, wasn't an assumption that I'd be able to work in the White House, because there I was, at the time, I was the only student working in the White House besides one law student. So what basically was that I tried to do the unusual thing, I was not conforming. I learned the fact that in, since I was young, I had to sell myself and go out there and not be afraid of the fact that I was half the person's age of the person that I was trying to, to convince that they should hire me. And it wasn't, I might sound like I'm a, I'm a great salesman or a terrific salesperson now, but um, I wasn't thin. And basically, as you learn from experience through going through unusual and challenging and demanding activities like college and like working in, in unusual places, you learn to be very articulate. You learn not to be afraid of approaching even greater circumstances or, or creating greater goals. You've spoken of Harvard Law School a number of times. Perhaps this question is a good one to pose right now. Two years ago, a friend at Harvard Law School encouraged me to think about law school, particularly Harvard, inciting the law profession as an excellent way to affect social justice and social change. This year, that same person vehemently discouraged law school, particularly Harvard, because of a pervasive attitude there towards high-class corporate law and business law. Could you tell me if law school is a viable option and an effective one for a person hoping to champion liberty and justice issues, or is it just three more years of living in an ivory tower and then off to the world of business? Okay, now we're going to get controversial. I really, I just hope no Harvard Law professors listening to me right now, especially any of mine, but um, <laughs> because right now I'm skipping a class, believe it or not. I mean, it's, it's going to end in about 10 minutes. I have torts right now. That's accident, um, suing for accidents and all those great things. Um, okay, basically what I'm going to say is that the law is a terrific profession if you do want to affect social change because it puts you in the position to work for companies, not to work for, for companies, but to work for organizations 
um, like civic organizations, to represent civic organizations, as well as to go out on your own. I mean, there are civil rights lawyers out there, and most people, when they think of civil rights, they think of blacks. But civil rights, remember, civil means people, and we're talking about the rights of the people, which means all people, men, women, whites, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, all religions, and we're talking about all sorts of discrimination and types of problems. But in addition to that, I want to say something about Harvard Law School, which is absolutely true, because um, it's a great law school, but at the same time, it constantly shows you and tells you that you can earn a lot of money if you go work for a corporation or if you work for a, cor a firm that represents corporations. And there's a danger in that because they say to you, and I hate to name figures right here, but people who are graduating from Harvard Law School right now, if they go, let's say, to work for a firm in New York City, are getting offers of $50,000 a year. And this is right out of law school and um, with no work experience whatsoever. So these are 24-year-old students graduating, getting offers like that, or going to cities um, around the country and getting offers is around $45,000. And it's hard for a lot of students to, sit, to walk in there saying, well, I, I believe in environmental protection and I want to work for the Environmental Protection Agency or another association that fights for for um, a cleaner environment. And then they walk into Harvard or any other law school around the country and they say, wow, I can earn this much if I go work for IBM, and I can earn half of that if I go work for the Environmental Protection Agency. And um, it takes a strong conscience and a strong belief in one's, in one's own um, values to say, I don't care about earning twice as much I can live off of $25,000 very comfortably, and certainly um, as, a, as a recently graduated student. And the other thing that I always say is that I'm very involved right now. I'm on the board of, a, of an organization called the Foundation for Youth Involvement, and a lot of my friends at, at school say to me, well, well, why are you doing something like that? Isn't that volunteer? Can't you, couldn't you be working part-time at a law firm and earning $12 an hour or something like that. And it's true, but at the same time, there's something that I feel that it's important and it's something that I want to do and I get a lot more out of that than I would for $12 an hour. Of course, I could go out and buy a car for myself, which I don't have, or I don't own a stereo and people walk into my, into my, um, my room on, in the dorm and they say, you don't have a stereo. And, you know, <laughs> and I, I used to cringe at that and say, well, gosh, I know, and, and I, I'm going to get one soon. I really will. And, um, <laughs> but because, to be honest with you, I've earned enough money through my, my writing, through my books and magazine and, and TV writing to buy a stereo. But to me, it's not important. I mean, I can listen to a, a regular AM, FM radio. And um, I think that one can go through any law school and even Harvard Law School and face the pressures of seeing students earning a lot of money and say to themselves, I still want to do it and I want to do the type of thing, of type of law that I'm interested in. Thank you. Another question. What advice do you give to kids who don't have nurturing parents? Where should they go for the support you obviously do get at home? Okay. I think that students, any young people, whether um, if they don't have their parents to go to, they perhaps might have a brother or a sister, an older brother or an older sister, or even a relative, a cousin, 
an uncle, and I always say aunt. I don't know what they say in Minneapolis. Some people say aunt. I'll say aunt, okay. Or a <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt like that. But, um, or a grandparent, or even a neighbor, a clergy, someone from, from your church or your temple, or even someone who lives on your block. And the reason why I say this is because um, there are a lot of different role models out there, and we don't constantly have to rely on our parents if there really is a problem in communication, or if your parents are simply too busy or don't want to make the effort to look at your problems. Because to be realistic, parents are human too, and some of them have problems so great in relating to their children that in some cases it might be detrimental to always um, air all of your problems with your parents and always expect the right answer or the, or the golden rule to come from their words because it doesn't always happen. And, and I can give an example of that, of what I mean, is because at this point I, I still go to my parents and I ask them their advice first about whatever I do. And right now though, I'm involved in different projects like business projects that my parents really know nothing about. And if, I had if they had sat there and said, well, I think you should do it or I think you shouldn't do it, they'd be lead leading me up a stream that they knew nothing about. And, and there comes a time where you have to say, well, I've got to speak to someone else, maybe a teacher. Because there are a lot of, um, a lot of teachers there out there in schools and guidance counselors out there who want to give advice and who are waiting for you to come to them. And, and they can't always knock on your door or pull your coattail and say, listen to what I've got to say. In loco parentis, that was That's the, the one, one you were reaching parentis. for okay. in place of parent. Do you see religious values playing any role in becoming successful? Religious values, I would say, in that religion teaches morals. And um, I don't, I wouldn't say any particular religion, but I would say any religion that teaches morals in order to, to not only to give to others, but also and when I say give to others, there's always a, the connotation of, of giving money or giving material things, but, but to, give ideal, to give ideas as well as to give support, moral and mental support. And I think that being involved in a religious experience can always be valuable for anyone. And I know that generally when a lot of young people get to the high school age, it's no more macho to go to church or to go to temple anymore that you know that's something that you had to do before you had to go to religious instruction or you had to be confirmed or bar mitzvah or whatever and um, I think that a lot of people end up running back to church or running back to to religion when they're having problems as opposed to staying with it and basically working out those single problems individually and um, I think that there is a lot that people can, a moral values and moral support that people can get from, from religion. I think you said in my study you're a Roman Catholic, That's right, right I'm Catholic, right. Good. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody wants to know, uh, are you married? How old are you now? And where do you see yourself 10 years from now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's an employer's question. So is someone trying to hire me out there? But um, OK. I'm, I'm not married. I'm 21, and I, um, where am I seeing myself in 10 years? Okay, where do I see myself in 10 years? Wow. Um, gosh. This is good practice, because I suppose in summer job interviews, I'll have to answer. Um, okay. Uh, okay, well, of course, I'll have a law degree by that time, and I suppose I'll be practicing law, but one thing I want to clarify, first of all, is that I never plan on choosing one single thing that I'm going to do for the rest of my life, and I think that that's 
I mean, I don't know, it seems sort of pretentious for, for me at my age to be telling people who are a lot older or the same age, but whatever, I'm going to tell you anyway, um, is the fact that I, I think it's sort of dangerous to say to yourself, when I grow up, I'm going to be a doctor, when I grow up, I'm going to be a, a, a secretary, when I grow up, I'm going to be a librarian, because I don't think you ever have to make that one choice that, that you're going to do for the, some, one thing you're going to do for the rest of your life. I want to keep writing. I want to hopefully this consulting that I'm doing for these businesses will continue. I want to practice law. I want to, um, wow, there's so many things I want to do. I, I want to go into, in an area of the entertainment business, and I want to, but the types of writing that I would do for the entertainment are basically the types of things that I do at this point are, are TV movies that have basically have a theme for involving young people in relationships, and they're not the, the flip type of I don't know. I don't call them trash, but I'll leave it at that. Um, okay. Um, I, I really want to do a lot of things, and I certainly plan on getting married and raising a family. And the other thing that I intend to do is I don't plan on allowing my children to grow so close to my wife as I did to my mother. And the reason why I say that is because when, I was, when my brother and I were growing up, my father was working and my mother was home with us. And she sacrificed a lot of things that she wanted to do um, to be home with us. And I'm too selfish of a person, I hate to say this, to allow my children purely to grow close to um, their mother and not to me, because I think that there's a role that a father has to play and that it's not just earning money or not just um, doing things with the kids after seven when he gets home from work or something like that. And I don't want to be in a type of situation where there's the housewife and then there's the husband out of work. Because I think that while that works for a lot of people, and I respect it because um, that it's very valuable for the child to have someone at home to talk to and someone to, to care for them during the day after school, I think that it's also valuable for fathers to have a role in that. And one thing I want to point out is the other thing, is there time for me to add something we're, to We're running fairly short. Okay. Uh, okay. I'll just say one thing. Okay. Okay. That it's never too late to start off something. And just to give an example, my mother went back to school to get her master's degree in um, clinical social work at age 47. I'm sure she wouldn't want me telling you that. But I'm saying there's really never too late to do anything, no matter how old you are. We're nearing the end of our time together. Let me remind the radio audience that they've been listening to Lawrence Graham who is a student at Harvard Law School talking about his experience in education and in life. Uh, the program is originated at Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. Our next forum speaker will be Archbishop Roach of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, January 17th. Today's program will be rebroadcast at noon on Saturday, this coming Saturday, over Minnesota Public Radio, AM and FM. I'm Donald Meisel, moderator of the forum, and we do want to thank the Blake Schools for co-hosting this program today. Uh, maybe just one more question to send you sure. off on okay, great. as part of our thanking you for a stimulating hour. Uh, many of the questions have been from uh, the young people, obviously. Here's one, I think, from a teacher. What pieces of advice would you give to teachers and to other adults who work with kids to help them in turning back on those kids who have been turned off by education or uh, learning and by life in general. Okay, I would say is to start developing some sort of conversation groups and not to expect to do everything in the classroom because it's hard to, I think, to basically combine 
values and to teach young people that, that, that school can be fun, because that's a pretty difficult thing to convince people of. I was hard to convince myself of that at, at some point. But um, it's to start discussion groups with some of the more motivated young people and, and mix them with um, the less motivated students who are not interested in schools because what's happening I think a lot is a, there's a lot of this categorizing and separating into the honor students and the non-honor students and they never combine, they never mix, they never get to know each other and they never learn values from each other so some of those honor students can share some of their own values of how they enjoy school and some of those non-honor students can share some of their values of what they enjoy doing outside of school and I think that's the best way to, to teach each other is not so much by telling the students um, that school can be enjoyable and valuable but basically for them to learn it from the mm. other students in their school. Mm. Lawrence Graham, you've been a treat. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. This is great. Yeah, it was great. Well. It was great. Oh, we'll take this off and take you off.